Section 14 of Tales of the Uneasy by Violet Hunt. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Read by Lisa Reichert. The Tiger Skin, Part 3. Impelled by the sudden fruition of all that was morbid in his nature, Wald Ensor, towards the end of the year, married Mary Adelaide Francis, the widow of J. Dibbon, Esquire. It is a fact that until he bestirred himself to apply for the license, he had not known the name of the father of Phyllis. Adelaide never refused, but seemed to prefer not to speak of him. Ensor supposed that Dibbon, a healthy, ordinary man of no preponderating degree of intellect, had quickly managed to alienate and embitter a capricious, easily bored woman like Adelaide. He was too modest to imagine that he himself amused her, or interested her to any great extent, but at all events he thought she considered him adequate. In his company she appeared to find the nearest approach, for her, to a state of repose. She took possession of him, body and soul. He realized it faintly. She even seemed to have made some slight sacrifice of her individuality, with a view to enslaving him completely. Though to everyone else her manner was curt, unpleasant, and at times unbearably arrogant, she stayed her savage tongue and curbed her domineering temper whenever it came to direct contact with her husband. And even had she allowed her natural acerbidity full play, the fact that she was now about to become a mother for the second time called forth all Ensor's chivalry and tenderness. He rejoiced greatly at his approaching paternity. The want that had been created deep in his heart by the premature death of his child out in California was about to be completely satisfied. The void that for lack of a better he had filled with Adelaide's child, Phyllis Dibbon, he had adopted openly, while secretly Mary, her foster sister, as he in his heart called her, was far dearer to him. Phyllis Dibbon was unsympathetic. He did not think hers was altogether a nice nature, but still she was a child, and Ensor's love of children was a real and true sentiment. Though Adelaide and he had met first on the common ground of their philoprogenitive instinct, Ensor had come to suspect that his own was the truer development of it. Adelaide admired healthy, presentable specimens of the class only, and the beauty of Phyllis as an undeniable guarantee of her own eugenical perfection afforded the amount of toll to her vanity, the satisfaction of her pride, that was needed to evoke the motherly in her. It was the only motive that swayed her, Ensor thought. Or else why did she so neglect the cook's unhappy progeny, the child she had begun by petting and more or less treating as her own? He could not forget that he had seen Mary, now degraded to a servant, on the day he had come across her in Beverly, sitting in the car with Adelaide's own child. The turn was too sudden. It outraged his sense of decency. Ensor, whose large heart was capable, where children were concerned, of embracing the halt and the maimed and the eugenically incorrect, could hardly endure to let the question stand over till Adelaide was more fit to deal with it. He constrained himself to do so, however, and contented himself with speaking kindly to the little girl whenever he met her on the stairs or in the corridors. She did not walk, she crawled. He had an idea she was slightly deformed. 
he realized it was mary he had stumbled over that first morning as she knelt by a side door into the garden feebly scouring some stone steps her translation from the padded seat of the car to the hard stones she was watching had been so sudden that he could not easily conceive it to be she after a while he did speak to adelaide she made no mystery of it she was a woman of her word and mary's playdays were over yes it was true she had until then been more or less brought up with phyllis had shared her room and her meals and walks and games it had pleased phyllis but she could not sacrifice a child's whole future even to please phyllis so now that was over with a sort of fiendish rationalism and want of consistency she condemned a child brought up through her caprice in comparative ease and idleness to do the rough work of the house eat inferior food worst of all she subtracted her from all the softening educative influences to which she had been accustomed he listened tapping his boot with his riding whip he said nothing he thought it over if only the child could hold on it would of course be as well not to worry adelaide just now but wait till she had got safely over her forthcoming experience always a severe mental trial to women of her temperament then surely milder counsels might prevail he might get mary reinstated a kind of foster-sister to phyllis and that was what he would like best oh very much best for he had the greatest the most absurd tenderness for the ugly sad unchildish child but if that were impossible if her mistress still refused to allow it mary might at least be taken out of this and sent away to some bright well-managed school or home of her own class to be properly trained and educated he did not like the notion of her being brought up to be a servant she did not look as if she would ever be strong enough but there were other professions he would see meantime he did what he could for the child and that was very little she never appeared in the better part of the house that the red baize door shut off and he sometimes fancied that adelaide disliked to see him cross the threshold of it into the other yet the oldest and most interesting part of high walls lay beyond and ensor was something of an antiquary where architecture was concerned he did not want to annoy his wife however and he was careful to conduct his architectural investigations from the back where the historical portions of the house were situated there mary's work lay and he often spied her at her task of ablution on steps and hearthstones armed with a pail and a piece of bath brick feebly scouring swirling a wet rag about ineffectually spreading long spider-like arms in a radius of their length all round her and producing a dull wet surface to be succeeded by a bright brown sanded one where before all was dull unvisited dust or dirt she had terribly long arms for a child of her size and age and she was moreover he noticed left-handed like himself he would stand there for quite a long time looking down on her rusty red ribbon top-knot knowing that the child was aware of him but was far too well drilled to look up and crave his notice how had they managed to transmogrify her so quickly from a sort of foster-sister to phyllis sleeping with phyllis driving about in the motor with phyllis and her mother into the submissive drudge who never looked up till he spoke to her and then with a sad cowed expression that went to his heart 
if she were actually carrying a heavy pail too heavy for her or trailing a broom long enough for a person twice her height he considered he was justified in taking the pail or the broom away from her at once and trying to learn from her the place where she wished it to be deposited it was difficult to get her to speak at all and she got shyer as the days went on he felt manlike that he could scarcely offer to go down on his knees and scrub the stone floor in her stead but he would have liked to do so for he realized that it was not a child's work he fancied that the school board if they were aware that one of their prey was thus day by day removed from every form of school training might have something to say about it and dreaded some sort of exposure for adelaide mary was given no tuition of any kind he was sure of it high walls was five miles away from market weighton and though in the nearest hamlet consisting of a few cottages there was a school that was half a mile distant mary never went beyond the garden if indeed she got any fresh air at all the place was curiously self-contained in its girdling walls adley did her own marketing in the motor tradesmen never penetrated within their circumference as it used to be said of the house in portland place that anything might go on there so it might be said of high walls adelaide had perhaps chosen to live here perhaps through some affectionate analogy with the home of her birth and the house in which her mother had died she had bought high walls outright so he learned she made her own gas she kept her own fowls and her own cows and she ordered her clothes from paris fetching large wooden boxes that had crossed the seas from the station herself in the ever useful motor in everything she did there was a brusquerie a jerkiness a suggestion of eccentricity there was no doubt that for one reason or another from austerity shyness and love of solitude or simply from lack of social instinct adelaide had succeeded in creating a human vacuum all round her an area sterilized of gossip since their marriage before the registrar three months ago mrs ensor her husband felt pretty sure had had no visitors as a matter of fact ensor knew of three people who had said they had driven or motored out to high walls to pay their respects to the lady he had married but even if they had done so admittance was probably refused them these were the wives of men that ensor had met about in market weighton or beverley and who had enjoined their women-folk to call on the queer uncivilized woman whom this gentle civilized man that they rather liked had married it was easy for ensor to see that she was not popular if people even realized her previous existence they forbore to talk of her and the call was only a tribute to his own charm and obvious pleasant gentlemanliness for he was a man's man a man who women are apt to find dull but as adelaide never went out never returned a call never expected to be asked anything it was easy enough to be civil to the husband and make him free of what there was of society in these sleepy little market towns before very long waldensor belonged to the conservative club of beverley and was put on the library committee of that active little place while in weighton he played golf and adjudged prizes the wives drawing-rooms knew him not or hardly at all he could not very well go about among the women without adelaide and he did not choose to do so 
he constrained himself to be more or less active in whatever was going to fulfil his trivial duties as a citizen when they came his way partly from a sense of duty partly he fancied because the monotony of his existence at high walls was slowly sapping his vitality dulling his good temper and sense of good fellowship the desire to travel again sometimes came over him in a great wave if it had not been for phyllis and adelaide he said to himself if it had not been for mary he did not say or even think to himself he would in certain irrepressible moods have proposed it to his wife to leave her for a time he could not somehow talk to adelaide now he thought it was because of her condition he had come to think that everything including questioning plans and so on must be deferred until adelaide in her own phrase was through she thought and talked of nothing else it was an event of more than ordinary importance to her well it would be over in a few months then he would ask her about her social ostracism he would find out if it was self-incurred a voluntary effort on her part or was it a case of sour grapes and had she been clever enough to make a virtue out of necessity she was clever enough for anything of that he was convinced or had she from pique temper or caprice so obstinately refused herself at the beginning when she had come to settle in yorkshire that people had grown tired at last of making overtures of friendship overtures that were continually repulsed by the sour chatelaine of the lonely house in its belt of sombre trees and solid deterrent masonry he could not ask her this now he could not ask her anything he literally knew nothing about the woman he had married and taken to his breast together with her child and her cook and her cook's bastard with the name that a man unknown had given her and which he had superseded so easily he did not know how long she had lived in yorkshire why she lived in yorkshire and why she had taken a mansion that was little better than a prison in which they two lived immured to do her justice she did not seek to prison him there with her she made no objection to his leaving her for hours she would not willingly have minded his leaving her for days, only he never did. He was held by her lazy, picturesque indifference, by the remembrance of the attraction of her bursts of passion in the days when she was not, as now, concentrating every force of her being on one single point, the bearing of a healthy child, a wonderful child, a child that should be even more eugenical than Phyllis. He did not know that he was weak, but he knew that she was strong and that when he was not loving her he was afraid of her yes he wald ensor the man who had shot tigers and braved artillery and dug for gold under circumstances of almost impossible fortitude and endurance was afraid of this hawk-nosed straight-lipped woman with the thin wrists the small feet and the vanishing waistline she was ruining him she was breaking his spirit, making him a craven, as in another department, Gertrude the cook, with her good strong hands that he shuddered to look at, was making of Mary. Mary, her child, the human being over whom she had power, even as Adelaide his wife, had power over him. He was sure of it. 
with her cruel if necessary training gertrude was killing her child by inches in obedience to her mistress's strange wild theory of economics the warped little body of the cook's child was being maimed and stunted her mind dwarfed and annulled her moral and physical growth contravened beyond recall for adelaide with her strong will and sense of duty was behind gertrude driving her to do what she thought was right and correct for the child of humble birth domiciled under her roof she was right economically right it were indeed useless and extravagantly unpractical to bring up the cook's child in luxury beyond her station the wrench of unfitness for her inevitable degradation and fall to her true station in life would be all the more severe later on only adelaide's want of imagination however could inure her to the thought of such a situation created by her own behest adelaide fond of children never ensor smiled bitterly under his drooping moustache and forced himself to remember that adelaide had the defects of her qualities and that philoprogenitiveness was not one of them he had gauged her aright in the old days at portland place or was it that that sly all-seeing old father of hers had sown the doubt in his mind adelaide fond of children she only thinks she is cruelty masked by philanthropy and what was that about mother's vanity and its non-negligibility as a factor he remembered the old man's pocky sneer as he said it cases of baby farming he had argued there's sheer cruelty a woman ill-treats or even kills the child of another no natural feeling except cruelty can possibly come into play not even vanity vanity yes there it was a clear issue the beautiful phyllis her own petted cherished and on the other hand mary deformed disgraced by nature's hand he used to hide his head in his hands as he contemplated the terrible antithesis get her away he must as soon as adelaide had given birth to the wonderful child that was to be hers and his that was settled meanwhile he suffered strange unseasonable torments sometimes hanging about in the back of the house he would see the hem of mary's frock or the reach of her arm as she scrubbed and lathered and polished then with a groan he would prevent himself from turning the corner of yard or outhouse lest he actually caught sight of the child at some one of her debilitating tasks he would clench his hands stuff a great cigar into his mouth anything to keep him from rushing upon the poor waif lifting her up and boldly facing gertrude carry her off to america or the antipodes one day feeling he could bear it no longer he got on his bicycle and rode out to wayton on purpose to buy something toys sweetmeats he did not know what for mary too handsome a present might bring down a beating he sadly suspected he had better get her something to eat something nourishing something that would disappear he was about to invest in chocolate fondants the best when he suddenly realized that the cook's child had been back in her proper station full three months and would no longer appreciate the kind of eatables that would appeal to phyllis who was a gourmet he asked for and procured the wholesome candy and rode home tired and depressed 
the impulse which had sent him out was a little spent poor mary was the cook's child after all bred to servitude doing only what her mother had done before her he was a meddling busybody and would probably only succeed in getting the poor little creature a beating he was thinking of adelaide and phyllis now of the rich sensuous beauty of adelaide's child and the uncanny handsomeness of his wife the devilish attraction of it swayed him always more especially when he was tired and overwrought it was her eyes however he had got the candy a fat packet that ought to rejoice any normal child's heart and on arriving home he went boldly into the rear premises through the red baize door and asked where mary was gertrude coarse homely but on the whole well favoured suspended her chopping operations at a board and raising her chin regarded him quizzically with a kind of good-humoured malice so it appeared to him she slightly deferred her reply then she said calmly mary is in the scullery raising her voice she called mary you're wanted quickly obediently a drooping crestfallen figure of infancy appeared and stood in the sunlight that poured through the doorway flung from a wide-open window far back in the room she came from. It irradiated the ground she stood on, and the filmy mass of cobwebs over her head. It could not light her up any more than the bogey in the field which flaps lank and dull in the full glare of noontide. And this was a living child, rendered by what means he knew not, unsusceptible, like any scarecrow, of light and joy." The depressed red bow on the top of her head looked as if it had not been untied for weeks. The hem of her skirt was partially torn off. It was far too long for her, and she had fastened, or someone had fastened it up for her, clumsily with a piece, two pieces of string. It showed a dirty pair of knickerbockers. She stood waiting patiently, blinking a little, hideous, shapeless, piteous. Gertrude said nothing but looked from one to the other, comparing them as it were, enjoying herself quietly, like a rough in the front row of the pit. After a while, as if the play had lasted long enough, she said, "'Come here, I'll put a pin in for you.' Mary came shuffling up, not unwillingly. She did not seem to dislike her mother. That is all that could be said, and Densor was glad to be able to think it possible that Gertrude was not always unkind to her. But such shocking neglect, even if there had been no excessive corporal punishment, was culpable. He stood handling the packet of sweets dubiously, while the mother proceeded, with many a shake and pull, to modify her child's disorder, which she had the sense to see injured her in the opinion of her master if master he could be called who had no authority at last summoning his courage ensor pulled out the packet and put it into mary's hand as she stood there pending the adjustment of clothes that could hardly be called such so ragged and insufficient were they the sweets fell to the ground dropped with strange unchildish negligence from a nerveless hand the child did not even look up. A spasm of agony transfixed the heart of Ensor. Gertrude noticed the violent contraction of his features. She picked up the packet of bull's-eyes and actually inserted one into Mary's mouth. Ensor did not see if the child retained it, 
for he was groping on the ground for some of the sweets that had fallen out of the burst packet. "'Say thank you, you silly,' Gertrude adjured the child, who stood astonished, bewildered by such ordinary attentions as are the usual award of the protected and cherished young of any class. She was passive through fright. But if she had had the spirit, it was easy to see that her one idea was to hide, and that her eyes were looking for a corner to run into. But her mother had hold of her, ordering her attire, shaking her as if she had been a small, frail apple-tree. "'That's a very unsuitable length for a child's dress, surely,' Ensor remarked when Mary stood, hardly erect, sheepish but disengaged at last. The peccant undergarments were shoved into their proper place, more or less, and concealed, and her long loose frock was draped into panniers all around her. "'She's skinny, that's what it is,' conceded Gertrude. "'Nothing won't stay up round her. The dress too long, eh? No wonder.' It's one of Phyllis's that Miss Adelaide threw away because it was too bad for her beauty to wear. It had to do for Mary, hadn't it? We can't afford to have clothes made on purpose for us, can we? Now run away. Run away and play. She grinned. Mary stood stock still. You're to grow into your clothes, I see, said Ensor helplessly. Well, make haste and grow. There's a good girl. Mary smiled. Even if the gentleman's words were absurd and irrelevant, she could not be deceived in the kindness of the speaker's intention. The smile, begun without spirit or brilliance, faded out like sunlight on a wall on a rainy day. Gertrude took up his speech and answered it. "'Grow! Her! Never fear! Mary's one of those stunted-from-birth ones Miss Adelaide's always talking about. Just look at these thundering long arms!' She extended to its full length the gnome-like skinny limb to which she alluded. The owner suffered this liberty wearily. Her stupid glazed eyes were fixed on Ensor. They seemed to say, "'Save me! Save me!' He stammered out, "'Couldn't she be sent to the sea for a month or so? I would arrange it. That is, if you could spare her?' He waited on the cook's answer agonizedly. She was, in effect, the child's mother, with absolute power over it for life and death. "'Spare her! Lord, yes!' answered the cook calmly. "'The work she does isn't worth speaking about. You're nubbit a poor worker, aren't you, Mary?' She turned to Ensor, away from the child, but she did not trouble to drop her voice at all. "'Twould be no good, sir. I'm thinking Miss Adelaide's begun her grand training too late.' "'What do you mean?' he asked. She'll be training her into her grave, that's what she's doing. Shh, for God's sake, woman, he muttered and sought his wife. Something must be done. End of section 14